You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Housing, early education, broadband, and combating climate change, all priorities of Governor Green's administration and Kauai County, too. We talked to Mayor Derek Kawakami about his hopes for this legislative session. We got the TAT, we got the general excise tax surcharge. You know, we got all these additional sources of revenue. And what we didn't forecast is, um, you know, when we went through the pandemic, I think a lot of us thought that, oh, we're going to be in economic collapse for a while. Let's let's get through this. But on the other side of the coin, the real property values went through the roof because of, you know, supply and demand. We had a, a surge of people wanting to move to Hawaii because we're, we were a safe place. Um, they were doing soul searching that every person going through the pandemic was. Some people dropped what they were doing, moved out here, which drove up the home values, which in turn, um, was favorable in a sense from a real property tax revenue standpoint. But, you know, what we're trying to do is always strike the right balance to, to not make too much money. We are in a place where we fortunately had a great team to line projects up, make sure that we had funding behind those projects to be able to sustain us into the future and sort of buffer us from all the challenges that the state is going through. And I can appreciate what the state is going through because at one point in time, I was at the Capitol trying to figure out the state's budget and how to make ends meet. And they have, uh, if I thought my job was huge, um, you know, the state's job is just monumental. Well, you know, we're at a point where we have a new administration, a new governor. Uh, We have a whole new crop of new faces in the House. Uh, and, you know, it's exciting to see, right, the energy uh, as we get going. Um, but, yeah, we, we do have these major changes, right? The counties, you know, have the hotel room tax and and are, are sitting in a better spot, even though the decision to go with the hotel room tax came up quite suddenly. But I don't know. I mean, what did Koi County ask for? What are you looking for this legislative session? Well, what we what we do best is just get to work, and you know we here on Kauai we have an awesome delegation representing us at the legislature. Of course, I think we're still trying to figure out who is going to replace former Rep. Tokioka, so that the I don't even know what district it is since they redrew the district lines. I believe District 16, which is Lihue, um, has some sort of representation, but we we collaborate very well um you know we partner in ways that perhaps makes us unique in the state of hawaii and i mean basically what we are focused on for this next legislative session is to be supportive of the legislature so that they can balance their budget make sure that they pay teachers what they're worth i know that lieutenant governor's main initiative is early childhood education it's a huge gap here on Kauai is um, affordable child care. So we're looking at one of our vacant buildings to renovate it and just to create a space of opportunity that if there is an early childhood you know, education operator that would like to operate, that the building would be able to accommodate that because we would have no idea where to start with running a preschool, but there are people that do. And so we are trying to make sure that we formulate our projects to be supportive of both Governor Green, Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke. You know, the governor has made it clear he wants to focus on mental health, houselessness, and and housing. And unfortunately, we have an awesome housing team that did very innovative projects like Keolala at Puoloke, which is our permanent supportive housing for for our houseless families. How many uh, families do you uh, assist over there? So that one was the very first. So that is 30 units, which may seem small to the city and county of Honolulu because, I mean, 30 is, you know, they sneeze at 30. But for us, it's pretty darn big. But more importantly, we partnered with Women in Need, who's just a phenomenal organization that provides all of the wraparound services. And so more than half of the tenants that started out at Keolala have already moved on to market rate 
for our workforce housing. And it's pretty cool because we built Keolaula directly across our KEO emergency shelter. And right across of Keolaula on what used to be just a parking lot, a county parking lot, we put over, we put 50 units of workforce housing. So it's very inclusive. It has um, every step of the way. Um, there, there's a housing option for everybody. And we put it right in the middle of our urban core because we realize that people that need a helping hand, they need access to transportation, jobs, healthcare services. And if you put them out, you know, kind of out in the, you know, in the corners of society, you're not really giving them the wraparound services that they need. And so we, we took a calculated risk to put it in where most people probably thought it shouldn't go, but it was the right thing to do, the right place to go. And I think um, over the last two years, it's a proof of concept that we can all coexist, that this community can come together. And, you know, you talked about the need that Koi has for preschools. How are you sitting for broadband? You know, for broadband, we just had a meeting with Hawaiian Telecom, and it was in regards to the, the last mile connectivity. And um, they have moved aggressively to try to make sure that every zip code on Kauai has that last mile fiber optic. Um, Spectrum, um, because of their cable service that was already well established, has um, has coverage. There are some pockets where coverage is challenging, but um, on the county side, we, we try to shore it up by providing free Wi-Fi at our public spaces, on our buses. Um, the big challenge is, is finding out what families have a challenge connecting because of financial reasons and what what can we do to make sure that every man, woman, and child has internet access that's reliable and that's that's quick so that they can be dialed in and be competitive and move up into the into the ladder of society like right now i would view broadband access as like a social justice issue because kids are dependent on it to do their research papers and be connected um we want to make sure that our families that need it the most have access to it well it just sounds like it is going to be complex. I know Lieutenant Governor Luke had mentioned that, yeah, compared to preschools, this one's going to be a bit more tricky to navigate uh, because you've got so many different entities, right? You've got DHHL doing one thing and the Department of Transportation doing another. Absolutely. And one thing that makes Kauai unique when it comes to broadband is, you know, our electric utility is a co-op. And because we're a co-op and it's um, we're member-owned and it's not profit-driven, um, many co-ops across the nation, um, because the co-ops tend to be in rural areas, underserved areas, they have diversified their portfolios by getting into broadband deployment to serve underserved communities. So it's not something I cannot speak on behalf of KIUC because I'm just a former board member. But if worse comes to worse and we have underserved communities that are challenged to get connected, at least within our utility model, there are options since you know, they have presence on all of our polls, and they own the polls. On the subject of uh, climate change, because I know that's another priority uh, for the Green Administration, how is Kauai sitting with climate change? I think we've been very proactive. We have a very forward-thinking planning department that, you know, during COVID, they started going out to different communities. You know, already, we already had one of the strictest shoreline setback laws as far as being able to develop near our shoreline areas um, and just recently we're the one of the first i believe in the nation to create a sea level rise zoning ordinance so it's taken into account climate change um, bigger tides more storm surge uh, rising sea levels and making adaptations to where people can develop and if there are already entitlements and people have a right to develop what is that going to look like so that their structures will be able to withstand what's forecasted as tremendous impacts from sea level rise. How are you guys uh, doing with the wind? <laughs> this week has been crazy. Well, for me and for the surf spot that I love, <laughs> near dear to my heart, the windier the better. Okay, there you go. But as far as how it's impacting our infrastructure, um, we haven't. I haven't directly gotten reports. I think the rain last week posed more of a concern 
Um, but like everything else, we may have a few fallen trees at some point. We may have branches. We may have debris from, you know, property. But um, if anybody can handle rough weather and storms, it would be it would be Koi. We've we've been through it, and um, you know we expect it at times. Yeah. Well, I hope you got your good waves in today. Oh, I always do. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That was Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami joking about his favorite surf spot and his priorities. He says this session his team is working to dovetail the county's concerns with lawmakers and the governor's priorities. Tom Papa filling in for Peter Sagal. On last week's Wait, Wait, Adam Burke worried about companies increasing productivity by canceling meetings. I used to work in offices, and if they cancel meetings, where am I going to fall asleep? <laughs> we'll keep you awake with our Not My Job guest, Gina Davis, on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Beginning Saturday morning at 11, following Radio Lab. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Kakuone, Kaka'akamakai, Kiwalos, whatever you know it by, it's the last open space of public oceanfront. And it's in a tug of war, marrying a fight of close to a decade ago. The nonprofit group Friends of Kaka'ako was born out of that battle over pushback to sell public trust lands to the highest bidder. Last month, we heard from the Office of Hawaiian Affairs about its plan to rename the area Hakuone, uh, the first step in asking lawmakers to reverse a ban on residential development in Kaka'ako Makai. Uh, the transfer was part of a settlement uh, over ceded lands. We invited two of the early organizers of the grassroots effort to keep the area in green space into our studio, Wayne Takamini, who now wears the hat as the head of the Kaka'ako Advisory Council, and Ronnie Wame, who still leads Friends of Kiwalos. Iwame uh, and Wayne recalled how at a, a 2005, uh, in 2005, a, a meeting of the Hawaii Development, uh, Hawaii Community Development Authority and the decision to allow um, housing on the Makai side of Ala Moana. One week later, in the headlines of the advertiser, it showed Alexander and Baldwin was selected as the master developer. Apparently, there was an RFP put out. And they showed the extensiveness of the plan. It was, first they were going to sell the land to ANB, I think 36.2 acres was. And they were able to, well, they showed three towers, 200 feet tall, because that was the height limit at that time, and it still is today. And surrounded by, each tower was surrounded by six-story condos too. And also with... Uh, related retail outlets, commercial along the Eva Channel of uh, Kiwala Basin. So basically, that's what started us in the battle. Like we got to stop this. Yeah. So I mean, it was kind of bam. It's like what backroom deals. It was like all of a sudden, the public didn't know what was going on, and then yeah, it then was bam. The, just this one meeting with hardly. Any of the general public there, they were able to change the zoning. And that was the power of ACD at that time. You remember, right? So, yeah, that's how we started, yeah. If I recall, the concern was that this was the last open space, and this was public land that was really going to be sold to a private developer. Yeah, so I guess ACD brokered that deal, too, and it was for $50 million. That was a sweetheart deal to me for prime oceanfront land. And now, if they sell it, it becomes private land from public. 
And, yeah, we couldn't let that happen. Talk about the thinking at that time, because it was really, you got a groundswell of the community pushing back. So I got involved when a friend of mine's, um, Michael Clicks, used to do all the body surfing meets at, in Point Panic. And he got me involved, and he just said, okay, guys, let's make an alternative plan. And so we drafted out what's called the People's Preferred Plan as an alternative plan to the AMB. And the Friends of Kewalos also had a an alternative plan, and we kind of combined to make the Shorelines Park Plan, and when we presented that to the legislature, they were like, wow, yeah, this looks good. So after the laws were for the prohibition of residential in Kaka'akamakai and also the laws prohibiting the sale of state land in Kaka'ako was approved and signed. Then they also made a resolution that asked HCDA to convene a working group to help develop a master plan. And the Kaka'akamakai Community Planning Advisory Council became that working group, and I became the chair. And we, in 2010, we had the, a plan approved by the HCDA and adopted. We worked with a few consultants, and we also worked with the HCDA, and it was approved, and then we moved forward. It was oh, great. We'll just go ahead and start making it. But some of the things that were good about it is that we also made a vision and guiding principle, and the vision is, is very much a community use, focusing on our unique cultural experiences and educational. So this land is actually public trust lands. And if you look at where it lies with OHA, OHA just says, oh, we own it, but really it's owned, but it's actually public trust land that's been conveyed to a state agency. So they own it, but still the term public trust means that it's for the public. You're holding it as fiduciary. That's my take on it. But OHA is, okay, we own the land. We can do anything we want. Why are you guys stopping us from building these condominiums? But their master plan is not very popular. I'm sorry to say, OHA, I don't know how much money you guys spent on your condominium master plan. It's just not popular. We feel that with the 55 groups that participated in our master planning process, you know, we're willing to put our plan up against theirs. And, Ron, you know, when you first heard about the transfer, I think it was under Governor Abercrombie, what ran through your mind? I thought that uh, the transfer was supposed to satisfy the debt that the state owed. So, actually, I thought it was good that finally the state is paying OHA what's due. So we actually supported that bill. But then there was a companion bill. It went through the same session asking to allow them an exception to build on the land that they just gonna, was going to receive. I don't know what transpired, but really it probably happened at backroom dealings that wasn't divulged to the public. But OHA took the land knowing that the residential ban was in place, so they knew that. But I believe it was rumored that Abercrombie told them not to worry. We will have it changed. And on that premise, they accepted the land, and also they said that it was a take-it-or-leave-it deal. He said, that's the only way we can pay you is by this land, take it or leave it. And, you know, we do hear that, gosh, if you oppose this, you're against Hawaiians. It's difficult because, you know, we're in the water. There's a lot of um, Hawaiian people that are surfing with us. And I have several of them come up and say, you know, this OHA thing, that's just seven Hawaiians, but they don't speak for all the Hawaiians. So there's a disparity there. And somehow I feel that maybe the chair of OHA right now, that person is maybe out of touch. I know that they tried to do a, a master planning for Kakakumakai, and it was is abandoned. I, I believe that the concepts that I participated and the concepts were very similar to what we have in our Kakakumakai master plan. So um, they abandoned that. And folks who don't know the history of that area, I mean, uh, that is a brownfield area. You know, it's, it's fill, and 
there are lots of concerns about climate change and what might happen there. So there is a concern about building so close to the shoreline. You know, there's many hotels in Waikiki, condominiums in Honolulu, including Kaka'ako, Mauka. And when they put down these huge buildings, they have to shoot down these pilings, concrete pilings to support everything going up 400 feet. You have to go down to to the bedrock. And when you do that, it blocks some of these natural underwater streams. And when that happens, stuff, sidewalks break, infrastructure, sewer lines, water mains, they all start breaking. So now, what would happen if they put pilings and cement foundations in Kakakamakai, where there's a whole bunch of hazardous waste under the ground? What happens if a sinkhole would appear somewhere Makai of a building or mm-hmm. because the ground has not been disturbed for almost centuries, yeah? So there are a lot of unknowns. Unknowns. And what would happen if a sinkhole came up is hazmat to decontaminate that. All the equipment got to be decontaminated. Where are you going to put all the residual contaminated stuff? You need a certified hazmat disposal area. Well, we have to take a break now, but we will continue our conversation with Ronnie Wami and Wayne Takamini, two of the early organizers of a grassroots effort that led to a ban of residential development just Mackay of Ala Moana Boulevard. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Mark Van Honecker, author of Imagine a City. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about a pilot's view of the urban world and some of our greatest cities. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Waimea Valley on the north shore of Oahu, celebrating Valentine's Day with a dinner at the Proud Peacock, 5.30 p.m. February 14th. Reservations at waimeavalley.net. We've been hearing from Ron Iwami of Friends of Kibaldos and Wayne Takamini of the Kaka'ako Advisory Council talking about whether lawmakers should allow residential development in Kaka'ako Makai. For, um, excuse me, the, uh, the, the group of Friends of Kiwalos led a groundswell of surfers and fishermen and park users uh, to lobby for a ban on residential development, Makai of Ala Moana. Uh, Takamini and Iwami raised environmental concerns of disturbing areas of the landfill, including an area known as the Piano Lot, an old EPA brownfill site which was paved over to reduce public exposure to hazardous materials in the soil. When they were putting on the asphalt, the piano lot, which is diamond head of the Children's Discovery Center, and that big, shaped like a grand piano, they actually had a 2007 phase two environmental study to build a kakako garage. And that was done for the Department of Health and is done by the Army Corps of Engineers. So, you know, talk about gold standards. And it's long, it's over like 100. 440 pages, I can't remember, but they have all of the tests, boreholes plotted out. They have all the statistics from each borehole, and all of it is saying, okay, lead exceeds the exceeds the normal level or acceptable level. Benzene exceeds acceptable level. Areas, there's um, stuff like uh, PCBs, you know, there's 
benzene, from petroleum. They had a pesticide plant, mixing plant, and they have DDT and all types of um, pesticides in the ground. Right, because previous to that area getting paved, I mean, it was, they had the look labs, we had lots of other industrial uh, types mm-hmm. of um, activities that were going Incinerator, on. Incinerator, the Opala station, yeah. You have a concern for what could be disturbed. Yeah. And you know, uh, when OHA was asked that question, what about the brownfields? How are you going to remedy that? They said, well, we'll let the developer pay for it. I guess they're not concerned that the developers knows how to cap it or remediate it. And you have an event coming up on Monday. Talk about what you hope to achieve there. Yeah, well, it's called a community informational gathering. It's going to be at 5 p.m. Uh, this coming Monday, February 13th, at the Kupu Ho'okupu Center, which is right there at Kualo Basin Park. Uh, it was the old net shed. So... Everyone is invited, and it's a learning opportunity to learn about the history of Kakakumakai, the law, how it came to be, uh, and actually how OHA got the land and how we are in this predicament today. We are not against OHA per se. We are against the development of residential in Kakakumakai, just there. So anyone such as ANB or OHA, or it could be Howard Hughes, or it could be uh, Kobayashi Group, all the big developers. If anyone attempts to overthrow the law, we will fight them. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, we're not against OHA. And OHA, ironically, was standing with us in 2005 to fight for the A and B project and selling the land to them. But now they doing the same thing on the same land that at that time was public. So I just want to say we are not against OHA. Yeah. And so uh, who do you have as guests on the lineup for Monday? Uh, we have uh, Dr. Bob Richman of the Kuala Marine Lab, and we have uh, Pat Ross, who is a retired construction, uh, underwater construction uh, manager, we have Tommy Y. He's a retired uh, fisheries expert and uh, aquaculture consultant. And we're going to have myself to cover the history of how the law came to be. And Kapono Nailili is going to talk about the Hakuone plan very briefly and what the bill states in uh, common terms. And we're going to share what we feel that could be there, not to say what, I mean, telling OHA what to do with their land, but just give them an alternative to look at. And we call it uh, MORE, the MORE plan, so the acronym M-O-R-E, M standing for marine, O is ocean, R is uh, research, and E is education. And we feel this plan has uh, is going to address OHA's concern about an economic engine, which they mentioned is the reason for the condos. But this one can be uh, a long-term vision with uh, uh, income stream perpetually, uh, education perpetually, and good jobs perpetually. So it's a long-term vision versus their short-term vision of building condos selling them, and in 10 years, the money will be gone. And this is done different from the master plan? Very similar concepts, but of course, a little bit updated. And once again, on public trust lands, these are very valid uses. You know, we could get grants, we could get all kind of educational people volunteering even. At your meeting on Monday, you have uh, John Whalen? Oh, yeah, John Whaley. I forgot the John. the former he, HCDA. Um, yeah, he's going to talk about a possible solution, which is a land swap. Since okay. OHA cannot build on the land because of the law, swap it with land they can build. And John is going to speak to the stadium land where you can build there and then you know, work with the estate land so we can work 
the deal out. Okay. And he's also going to cover all the, the master plan and the toxicity of the land that OHA has, whereas you don't have their problem in the stadium land. Okay. So hopefully they'll, that's a good uh, solution, too. Before we leave, uh, at the end of my testimony, I told OHA that we want to work together. This is like the fourth time we're battling them since they got the land in 2012. And we don't want to continue bucking heads every year, every year, every year. So let's work together. And we can find a way if we work hard enough, just like just as hard as we did to create this law, we can find a way to satisfy their needs and the public's needs. We just got to sit at the table. So I hope that message, they took it to heart. And they're going to want to meet with us because we want to. So like I said, we're not against OHA. We want to meet. We want to work together. That was Ron Iwame of Friends of Kiwalos and Wayne Takamine of the Kaka'ako Advisory Council talking about whether lawmakers should allow residential development in Kaka'ako Makai. And for more about this idea of a potential land swap with OHA at the proposed Stadium Entertainment District, uh, there's a meeting on Monday at Kupu where that will be taken up. That area is also known as the old Net Shed Pavilion. That starts at 5. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today. So close and yet so far. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story on the latest with the delays of the opening of a new high school in Maui. Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about it. Good morning, Chad. Good good morning and aloha Friday to you, Kevin. Yes. So our story today is uh, one written by Marina Riker. Right. So she was actually at a community meeting uh, on Thursday uh, to on Maui to deal with this ongoing problem. You know, just listening, you talked to Ron and Wayne earlier about the Kaka'ako Makai uh, lingering problem. Then you brought up the Aloha Stadium. Yes. And I, I, this, this too, I couldn't help but think of, of my gosh, there's these, I feel like we're on a treadmill with these projects. This particular one is, is, is very puzzling. It regards the Kulani Hakoi High School. I hope I pronounced that correctly. It is in Kihei on Maui. And this meeting was to get an update uh, primarily from the Department of Education about what's going on with this school. And, and it, the school has not opened yet. It's complicated, but the latest update was that the DOE was unveiling uh, a, a rough sketch of uh, a possible bridge. This bridge would be an overpass from the school, which is on the um, Malka side of Pi'ilani Highway, which is a very, very busy thoroughfare there. And then it would go over to, uh, obviously, the other side where a lot of the neighborhoods are located. By the way, we actually have an illustration of that um, that possible bridge that's in the article. But the frustration here, and obviously that's so students can cross safely, right? They don't mm-hmm. have to go directly across the highway. But the the problem is, is this school has been in the works for many, many years. It's cost a lot of money. And there's a lot of people just fed up with the Department of Education, uh, they're angry. They, they are losing trust uh, in the institution. Well, you know, you, you kind of don't blame them. I mean, My goodness, mm-hmm. a brand new school, the students, you know, were told they, they could uh, get in there this year, and, and now they can't because of this stalemate, right? I mean, right. the mayor it, wants it, it to be it, safe for the kids. Uh, yeah. and, and so this structure is just sitting empty. Yeah, that's the new mayor, Richard Bisson, over there on Maui County. Um, not only is it empty, but it cost $200 million to build this campus. That is not a figure um, in error. $200 million to get this uh, this high school up and running. Uh, it, it will not open uh, in no small part because back in 2013, my God, it's been 10 years, <laughs> the Land Use Commission said, look, we're going you got to do something to have this bridge, if you will, between the school and, and the neighborhoods. It could be an overpass. It could be an underpass. But the LUC is holding firm to that. The mayor is holding firm to that, that you need to have this in place in order to accommodate the students and get them safely um, to and from school. And by the way, the the uh, DOE has also proposed, you know, we could help bus, if necessary, the students from the school to, to their homes. Yeah, but oh my gosh, you you know the school is there. It's built. The community's been waiting, and and now just they have to wait even longer. 
Right. Another wrench in the works, and this is what's got a lot of people really confused, is that the DOE just took its time uh, following this order from the LUC about getting that bridge or that underpass across the Ilani Highway. What they did instead is they commissioned studies. They actually ended up spending $16 million. That is not a figure in error either. $16 million on a four-lane roundabout that's actually in front of the school. Uh, we have a, um, a picture of that roundabout in Marina's article today as well. Uh, but someone said, really, was that the solution to this problem? This is what you've been doing when 10 years ago you were asked uh, to take care of this, and it's, it's not happening. We should let you know, by the way, there were 35 freshman students. They were all set to enroll at uh, Kulani Akoi High School. They're temporarily being accommodated not far uh, away at Lokalani Intermediate. Yeah, but that's the heartbreak, right? Oh, my gosh, the students suffer. Um, but, yeah, I guess so we'll, we'll just then, what, have to see how this plays out. Uh, it's just a shame that that building is sitting empty. Yeah, similar to the, the Kakaka Makai, not that they are analogous, but, um, you know, the legislature is involved here. There's pending legislation from OHA and obviously opposition. And similar to the Aloha Stadium, that's an issue that does involve the ledge, but also several state agencies. Uh, where Marina kind of left off with her article is that one proposal was, gee, maybe the DOE should go back to the ledge and, and ask for some emergency funding to help take care of this 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 bridge to honor the order of the LUC. Uh, we'll see whether that happens or not. Um, of course, there's Maui lawmakers involved here, former and current ones. Uh, we should also add, just as a closing moment, that uh, I hate to end on a bummer note, but it, it now could take at least several months. And according to Brina's article, it could take a couple more years for this school, $200 million school, uh, to open to service uh, the, the students in the area of Kihei, Maui. Mm, does not look good for, for DOE. No, not at all. But thanks so much, Chad. Yes, and you guys have a good weekend. All right, you too. We've been hearing from politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. Or to read reporter Marina Riker's full story, visit civilbeat.org. As the world recovers from pandemic shutdowns, find out where developing nations are looking for new ideas. Which is the most mobile-first country that we need to model ourselves after? It's China now. Get an update on the scene in China and discover a few surprises from the Venice of Casanova's time. The convents in Venice, many of them were actually harems. On the next Travel with Rick Steves. Beginning Sunday at noon, following New Dimensions. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. of our farmers has been in the headlines recently. Today, we look at new data produced by the University of Hawaii's College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. The conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Tao Lei, Department Chair of Family and Consumer Sciences, to talk about how communities across the state can help support the well-being of our farmers. A recently released report looks at uh, Hawaii residents' perception of farming and their willingness to spend more for local products. So the results of the survey, do they help farmers understand what their perception is in the public? Well, it's the first part is more of a temperature check. So what okay. is the public perception for farming and farmers? And we see that, oh, yes, so it is value here in Hawaii, having locally produce grown in Hawaii is, it is supported. But at the same time, we ask them about their behavior. So what is your behavior in terms of purchasing? Because we can have these values, but it really needs to translate in behavior. So we ask them, like, on a weekly basis, how much of your lo- of your 
you know, groceries are locally grown that you purchase. And um, and we see that about 30% of folks on average are buying their produce are locally grown, right? So then we want to see, oh, well, that's interesting. Which group or which demographics are saying, I actually have more than 30% of my weekly, you know, groceries are from locally grown produce versus those who are not. And we found that, okay, so if you're on the neighbor island, if you're a native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, or part Hawaiian, you actually have less income, less than um, 100000 You're more likely to be actually to, to support by purchasing locally grown. Um, and then a step further, we asked, okay, of those who um, don't necessarily buy locally grown, are you willing right, to pay more? And so on a separate question, we asked that, like, are you willing to pay 10 to 15 percent more? And we have 56 percent of our local residents saying, I will pay more. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's, re- that's really good. That's yeah. really good. Especially since it seems like everyone here knows that we need to produce our own food, right? We shouldn't be so dependent on imported food. I think something like 90% of our food is imported. So it's good to hear that the majority of people recognize the importance of buying local. What were some of the other findings from the survey that you conducted? Yeah, so when I I shared with you that in terms of purchasing behavior, you've got the lower income, less educated, are doing it. But those who said, I'm willing to spend more, it was the higher income. Those who make more than 100,000 are saying that they will do it. But when you look at their behavior, they're not. Mm -hmm. And those who said they're willing to pay 10 to 15% more for locally grown produce, also Native Hawaiian and those who live, who were born and raised in Hawaii. Oh, that's very yeah. interesting. What, what do you suppose there's a discrepancy between the, the group of people who say they're willing to but don't actually purchase as opposed to the group of people who may not make as much money but do support local, do buy local? Um, well, so for the folks who have higher income that they say that they are willing to support local and buy local but they're not, perhaps it's just a visibility and accessibility, right? Where they go grocery shopping or where they, they purchase their produce, it's not in a way that the locally grown are visible to them. Perhaps, I don't know, Whole Foods or... Right. Right. <laughs> right. In box stores. I don't <laughs> Or maybe they're so rich that they don't actually even go do their own grocery shopping. Somebody else is doing their grocery shopping. And and so their behavior are not. If it was more available or if it was more visible, they would. Because there's always what a cost benefit in terms of, like, what are you giving up? Convenience. Mm-hmm. We often have habits in terms of where we go to do our grocery shopping or do our things. And for some of us, if it's too much to go out of a way to go to the farmer's market or to actually seek out grocery stores or supermarkets or or go to the farms themselves. I mean, that might be, you know, the cost of time, right, to be able to do that. So you're, you're doing a value right here. Like, what's more important? My time, potentially, or because I've got, you know, so many things to do, or my value that I really care about those who grow our food. So if you really really care about the farmers and those who grow food, you may give up some of your conveniences or your habit patterns and do that. But again, it's always a cost, right? What, and our intangible costs, like time, yeah. in addition to the material costs, like actual financial and resources. So those who do have the material resources, they, they may be willing, but then there's a cost of time, perhaps, or the convenience. Yeah, it yeah. seems like for for many people, it may just be easier to go shop at Whole Foods as opposed to find out where your local farmers markets are or, or which local mm-hmm. grocery stores may be selling local product. You're right; that the time mm-hmm. factor does factor into it, doesn't it? Yeah, because yeah. um, I'm well, all pretty right now. It seems like we're all mm-hmm. juggling many things, so time is a commodity, and it, it is a resource that we have. We don't have infinite you know resources on that too Um, but what is really interesting is those who actually do purchase you know we have um, we have 56 in our sample that said that they purchased between 51 to 100 percent of their produce their you know that their food at home is from locally grown and they they were the lower income in the neighbor islands so I I think that could be a testimony to the debucks program that makes locally grown more accessible and available 
It's an incentive. It incentivizes the the grocery stores to work, the retailers to work with farmers to have that fresh produce and things a little bit healthier to to our community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it sounds like people with less income or less disposable income probably have to get more creative too, right? They have to be able to get more value for their dollar, maybe stretch it a little bit more and, and maybe maybe it's easier to to go down to a, a farmer's market. How much do you think local pride or, or this kind of local versus mainland kind of undercurrent, how much do you think that factors into people's willingness to buy local. I really think you're seeing this because we're seeing these messages uh, support the uh, local ag producers, get local, support the INA, the caretakers, the farmers, particularly around the regenerative ag, like in the farmer's market. And I, I think there there is a really growing movement around and, and the public is recognizing that we can't depend on our imports because we just we have another disaster and that's it and the COVID pandemic really highlighted how valuable and, and instrumental and our farmers as an essential worker so our farmers our ag producers are essential workers right they didn't they weren't the ones who actually they didn't stop providing and growing food and, and in Hawaii particularly we actually a lot of us had to pivot toward our local ag because it wasn't it wasn't coming in like we, we there were many things that we were, our habits were used to, wasn't being provided. So it really highlighted our importance of local growth. So I think you are seeing that, that yeah. perception in our community now. But at the same time, what are resources right now to really help our ag producers? Or ag producers, if, if you say there's 7,000, 7,300 7, farmers, ag producers in Hawaii, that's like 0.5% of our population. So if we have another disaster and the food's not coming, our 7,300 <laughs> are going to feed 1.4 million of us? Ooh, that's, is that yeah. going to be uh, is that going to be is that a reality? Yeah, is that realistic? Wow. Wow. What yeah. what then is the solution? Do we need more people in the ag industry? Should we be creating more farms? Well, I think I'm the wrong person to ask about solution because I'm coming from an angle of the social science and the even the human developmental dimension that most people don't recognize that there's a mental health component. Because if we have farmers leaving because it's so stressful and they are killing themselves or they're so highly depressed. Farming in the United States and ag producers is number four in terms of ranking, in terms of depression. It's even higher, wow. higher than even, yeah, the healthcare industry is the fourth in terms of depression. It's the third in terms of occupational hazard, right, in the United States. So that's why we did our, our needs assessment to see, is that is that true for Hawaii? And it is showing that there, for certain population, that those who are under 45, 45 and younger, 52% have reported that they were depressed. Wow. And 14% are suicidal, right? So if we don't address the mental health and getting support to our young ag producers, who's going to be growing our food? Right. Especially when that disaster hits. Right. How, yes. how do we do that? How, how do we support them so that they can have better mental health in an industry, in, in a job where you're saying it's it's pretty stressful? How do we support them as, as consumers and just as fellow residents of Hawaii? Yeah, so that's, thank you, Russell. That's why we have what we, uh, we're trying to initiate this Malama the Farmer campaign, where it's get local and buy support local. It's not just the freshness and it tastes better, but of course those are important. But that's, you know, that's, that's part of our sort of pleasure in our life is we enjoy good food and healthy, delicious food. But the Malama, the farm campaign that we're hoping to advocate is more about you support your ag producer is because there's a relationship you have with the people who actually grow and do all that hard work to make sure that you and your family are fed. So you support local ag because you care about the individuals who are doing this work. So it's from a relational care value, even in addition to some, perhaps an economic or the taste or, or the freshness of, a, of the produce. It's because you really care the human value. I think if we have more care in our community and emphasize that caring relationship, that you get to know your ag producers, go out and find out who are growing your food that you're eating, and you develop that relationship, 
I have a colleague who actually goes to farmer markets every week, and she goes to the same Ed, little Ed, at Kaka'ago Farmer. And every week she wants to know, how is my farmer doing? And she buys those produce because she, she cares about little Ed and, and his small business because he's there. And when he's not there, she'll text him, where are you? What happened to you? And you go, oh, I'm in the Philippines right now, right? Because you develop this relationship and when you have this relationship, it means more. And the farmers themselves, they have, they love people. Like, they, they do this because it's such a hard work for them. You know, they don't have vacation. So when, when somebody asks them and sometimes people go, why don't you just take a break and go on vacation? You're so stressed. And they're like, really? Who's going to feed my chickens? Who's going to water them? You know, the right. weed's going to take over. When am I going to get a vacation, right? So the fact that if the public can recognize that, that gives them more meaning to, like, wake up 5 o'clock, right, and to weather through without, you know, most of us, majority of us, if, you know, we're lucky, we have a paycheck. Farmers don't have a paycheck. You know how much for each dollar that you spend, how much a farmer's making with oh, that dollar? I would love to know. Well, the USDA in 2018, the farm share, it says 16 cents. Wow. 16 cents for each dollar. Wow. Right? But if we are saying, wow, you do such hard work, I understand that this is really hard work because it shows that you know 90% of our consumers are saying mm-hmm. it's very hard, and they're realizing that 2% is not a good profit margin in this business, um, that, you know, I understand. So I'm going to support what you're doing. Tao, thank you so much for coming into the station today. Oh, thank you, Russell. So grateful. That was University of Hawaii professor Tao Lei talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. They were talking about a recent survey that looked at community perceptions of Hawaii farmers and the willingness to buy local. Well, that does it for us on this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we look at a play opening this weekend called Aihula. And a reminder, you can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of our HPR website or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our program is produced by Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.